Oh yeah, they they are true predators. They they love to chase bait fish. They're very territorial. Like they'll love to sit in the shallows. I mean, you can throw poppers at them. If you get in their way, they will hit. Uh, you'll find that lots where they'll push in towards the temple leaf, and then they'll just start feeding heavily. They'll start pushing them in towards the shore, and that's usually you can see the bait fish rising. You start to see the bait balls come up when the tiger starts schooling. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Theflycrate.com is your source for all things fly fishing. The Fly Crate offers a monthly fly club. We select patterns every month for your home waters. With membership, you'll receive flies created to match the hatch in your area, along with the Fly Crate's guide magazine, the convenience of having flies delivered right to your door, some sweet stickers. Discover new patterns and start stocking your fly boxes now. Theflycrate.com Here's your host, Mark Hopley. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. This time around, we want to welcome to the program Chris Stock. Now, Chris is originally out of Swan River, Manitoba. He's a guide for Plumber's Lodge in the Northwest Territories and uh, has spent a lot of time in the parklands of Manitoba, which is well known for large trout, uh, some bait fish, and some some tigers, some browns, you name it, rainbows. Uh, Chris, thanks for coming on the program tonight. Appreciate it. Yeah, no, no worries. It's an area, Chris, that I don't know a lot about the parklands, and I keep hearing it keeps coming up in conversations, so we really need to dig into this. But before we do, I just want to know a little bit about your history. Um, tell us what brings you to the water and how you got into fly fishing. You know, I, I grew up in Swan River, and uh, actually I've been privileged enough with my parents uh, they have a cabin up in the Duck Mountains, which is uh, probably one of the most underrated places of the parkland. I grew up regularly, like doing regular spin cast fishing, a lot of for walleye and whatnot. And then uh, when I started fly fishing, I was about 10. My parents bought my brother uh, a fly rod, and I was jealous, so I wanted to get one. So I ended up getting one for my birthday, and it's pretty much just been a vicious cycle. I've just been dived, I dove right into it, and probably become one of my biggest passions. Who would you say have been some big influences in your fly fishing? That You know, your your family? Or who, who would you name, if you had to name a couple influences? I always like to ask that. Yeah, I, my influences would probably be my dad. He's not a fly fisherman, but I learned a lot from him. I learned how to read water from him, um, especially a lot of the bigger lakes. And he taught me, you know, how to locate trout and whatnot, and then different times of the years. And then I've actually was lucky enough that I've met a lot of really knowledgeable fly fishermen on the way. Uh, some Bob Sheedy, uh, Bob Morenci, Mark Anderson, and Mac Warner. And uh, they pretty much showed me the ropes for Manitoba, and uh, they're pretty much the pioneers. They've been fishing it for years before the parkland ever was was known. Mm-hmm. And they've been a huge influence to be. Yeah. I always like to talk to people that are really intimate with areas, and uh, you probably got a wealth of knowledge that we can draw from on the parkland. So tell me what is so special about this area you call the parklands? So one thing, I'm going to, the parkland's kind of big. I like to divide the parkland into two divisions. There's going to be the southern division, which is your flipper lakes, and then there's going to be your mountain lakes up in the Duck Mountains and Porcupine Forest. So what makes the southern part of the parkland so special is the amount of work that an organization called Flipper did. 
they put in aeration into these lakes that uh, without these aerations, these lakes would die. They're not very deep, but they're very prolific. Um, the food in these lakes, uh, it's not really a condiment. Like, these fish will always put on weight in the winter. They don't lose weight. That's what makes this place so special. Um, if I can go into a little more detail, I'll give an example, Patterson Lake and Twin Lake. So mm-hmm. the main food sources in these lakes are the forge, the base, it's the flathead minnows, the shiners. So during the winter months, these fish don't get skinny. They keep pounding, putting on the weight. And it, it makes for such a great fishery. And, you know, these lakes aren't very deep, so you don't need to have to fish 50, 60 feet, actually. A lot of people who come out here, they like to fish the deeper water. But if you spend the time in the spring and the fall, lots of times these fish like to prowl in shallow. They like to sit into maybe five to ten feet, if not shallower, and they just push the baby fish, and it's just a lot of fun fishing for them. It's interesting you you bring you brought up the aerators, which I think is a great point because we're we're pretty fortunate. I I can speak from the region I'm in in British Columbia too. A, a lot of these lakes, if they didn't have aerators, a lot of them wouldn't winter, wouldn't support the fish. But when you when you start dealing with um, wintering these fish, you've got uh, bait fish that are present. You've got a recipe for some large large fish, don't you? Oh yeah, it, it, it's probably the main reason why the parkland is so well known. Like uh, there are some trout lakes in the parkland region, and more or less up in the Duck Mountains and the Porcupine Provincial Forests, where they don't have aeration, and they do produce very big fish. But these lakes are almost over a hundred feet deep, very different water than what you fish in the south. Um, for example, Gall and Glory Lake. And then in the Porcupines, there's uh, Gas Lake, which is another trophy tiger trout fishery, and uh, Vinny Lake. Well, this is a fish I keep hearing a lot about, too, these tiger trout. And so you got, uh, my understanding is, uh, I mean, species of note for the fly fisher, uh, browns, rainbows, tiger trout. What make these tiger trout so special? I, those fish are so aggressive. They hit like no other fish Um when Twin Lakes was probably one of the first lakes in Manitoba to get trout, I have never seen a lake on fire. They hit flies with bad intentions. You can fish mice from them when uh, back in the start in the heyday of Twin Lakes. They would come up out of nowhere and just slam them. It was pretty much like fishing for pike. They're just so aggressive. Hmm. What exactly is a tiger trout? I mean, I, I've seen them. They they look almost like a brookie mated with a char, but I, I I could be in left field. What exactly are they? A tiger trout is a cross between a brown trout and a brook trout. Um, that's pretty much both. They take the eggs from, I believe, a brown trout, and then they milk, get the milk from a brook trout. Ah. So is this something yeah. that it gets stocked in there that's not a naturally occurring uh, fish? Every, everything in Manitoba, especially for trout, there's not many places where the trout will actually uh, spawn and successfully spawn. Most We rely heavily on our hatchery in Manitoba. Actually, almost every lake is stocked with our hatchery. Okay, Chris, so let, let's talk about these tigers. So, I mean, are they true predators? I mean, if they got the brown trout in them, I could see that for sure. Oh, yeah, they, they are true predators. They, they love to chase bait fish, and they're very territorial. Like, they'll love to sit to shallows. I mean, you could throw poppers at them. If you get in their way, they will hit. Do they tend to school the bait fish up and then just start feasting, or how does that look? Yeah, actually, that's uh, you'll find that lots where they'll push in towards the pemphalies, and then they'll just start feeding heavily. They'll start pushing them in towards the shore, and that's usually 
good to see the bait fish rise. And you start to see the bait balls come up when the tiger starts schooling. What kind of patterns are you using? Are you using an indicator? Are you stripping something fast? How does that look? Uh, I depends on the time of year. Um, in the springtime, I like to fish a lot of larger uh, bait fish tires, like uh, probably about a size six rabbit strip with a little bit of marabou underneath. So I don't really have a name for that one. I've, I came up with it a long time ago. It's on my Instagram page. And then I fish a lot of marks and minnows too, which is about size eight. One of the most popular Manitoba patterns. Uh, can't buy it. It's very hard to find, but it's it's probably one of the most effective flies for the park mad region. Do you use a lot of balance patterns? I I personally do not use a lot of balance patterns. Um, I fish a little bit more aggressively. I like to push in towards the shoreline, and I like to work uh, a little bit faster than most people, but it, I do what kind of works. Uh, on Twin Lakes, for example, I wouldn't really use a lot of indicator fishing. I like to push the shoreline and kind of fish a little bit more aggressively and try to find the tigers, especially where they're pushing and feeding heavily. It, it's hmm. a lot more effective, I find, than, than a balance. You're actually really talking my language here because I've really grown accustomed to fishing for these uh, blackwater rainbows that we have out my way and these things are our predators too they they specifically target bait fish not to say they won't take a chronomet or a leech or things like that but if you can imitate whether it's a red-sided shiner or a small perch pattern depending on on where you're fishing you can have a lot of fun oh yeah same same thing as mountain but like uh if you can get close to what uh to what they're feeding on usually it's sticklebacks is probably one of the main food sources in you can have tons, tons of success, and then you catch lots of fish too in a day. You know, upwards to 20, 25 on a really good day. Wow. And how big are these fish? What would an average size fish be in a lot of these parkland lakes? Uh, I'd say the average size fish you're going to get is between, I'd say around the 20 inch mark. Um, you can always catch a lot smaller stalker fish, but there's a lot of larger fish. So I'd say the average in the flipper lake would be about 20 inches. If you're sitting at home and wanting to plan a trip to this region in Manitoba, Canada, where, where would be the best place to start in your mind as far as planning this trip? What town are you headed into, and 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 what's the best uh, route to take? So, if you're gonna, I think Roblin, Manitoba is probably the starting point. If you're looking at fishing the popular aerated lakes like uh, East and West Goose, or right in the town of Roblin, Manitoba, um, you're only 30 minutes from Twin Lakes, which is also has three new lakes beside it, Percy Lake and Tease Lake. And then you're only about an hour and a half drive from Patterson to Carrick and Gorsett Beach, which isn't too far. So it's kind of like the heart of the whole area. You get to it, I believe, by driving. Um, if you're coming from the west, you would take Highway 1 to uh, Regina. Right. And then from Regina, you would head north on Highway 5 to Roblin. It goes straight to Roblin. Where... This is kind of a weird question. Where's the Russell Inn? Because this keeps coming up in conversations. Yeah, the Russell Inn is in Russell, Manitoba. It's actually it was mostly built for the it's got a big ski hill in that area. Okay. But uh, yeah, a lot of fly fishermen stay there when they go up to the area. It's kind of it's another place that's kind of central between all the lakes. Okay, so that might be a, a good base too. So it sounds to me as though you guys are adding lakes all the time and when you say adding lakes does that mean that you're putting an aerator on a new body of water and stocking it or how does that happen yeah so um flipper has added a new lake Tease lake um in the last five years i'd say they added maybe two or three lakes corstaphine pythus and uh, or three of the newer lakes um 
Yeah, so they they have a project. I'm not, I have I don't sit as a member of Flipper, but I know they from an idea there. They, what they do is they they go find lakes that are close to power line, and then uh, they go from there, and then they do a bunch of series of tests. And if it meets a certain criteria, they will actually start to develop it as a trophy Stillwater Lake. That's that's pretty exciting because. I... I mean, let's face it, Manitoba is the land of lakes. There's, they're everywhere. So if you can access power and you can winter fish, you're, you're on to something. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of nice. That, especially in the parkland region, it's, it's not extremely forested either, and there's lots of farmland with power lines. So it's, a lot of the lakes is pretty close. Cool, so it's not too far. A lot, I find a lot of these regions with big fish always come with their unique challenges, if you will. And I, I know from fishing kind of grassland lakes, they can get pretty windy. Is uh, Talk to that a little bit. Is that a bit of a challenge? Uh, not so much, actually. Like, when if it does get really windy, these lakes aren't very large, unless you're in the Duck Mountains, say, if you're on uh, Glory Lake or Gall Lake. If you're in the, the Flipper Lakes, they're not too big. You don't get too rough. You don't get thrown around too, too bad. Um, I'm kind of a diehard. I've, I've fished through thunderstorms and some rough patches but it, it the lakes you usually find a lake close by you get some shelter from um if it's too windy on one lake you know you can just drive to the next lake that's like two minutes down the road i'm curious about your kind of go-to setup chris on, on on these waters are you fishing out of a aluminum boat for the most part or what what are you using for gear um i have two john boats and a float tube and actually i used to fish a lot out of my john boats when i first got them but i've slowly transition back to the float tube um on my larger lakes i will use my john boat just so i can get to other places faster but i i like the being able to control um, how fast i drift and all that it's so much easier to do it from a float tube and i know a lot of people like to fish chronomids and whatnot but uh in the, in the float tube you can just you can do pretty much everything and you don't get tangled up with the anchor ropes because if fish they'll run and they'll run right at you at your anchor rope too and it's kind of a pain when you get lose a big fish to the anchor rope so I've, I've kind of gone back to the float tube setup yeah well that's a nice way too if there is any wind float tube you can you can stay pretty low to the water and you know what i'm the same way i, I love fishing i like fishing out of a tin boat don't get me wrong but there's something about either being in a pontoon or a float tube or a U-boat that uh, you, you're in touch with the water so much. Yeah, that, I, I love being in control of the water, too. Like, if you want to just move, you want to turn, it's fast and easy, and you can keep yourself pretty stable. And then what I do actually a lot now is I'll throw bring a float tube with me in my bigger boat if I'm on glory or whatnot, and then I'll go to where I want to fish, and then I throw the float tube out, and then I use the float tube in that area. Just easier control, less to worry about. I don't have to worry about motors or anything. I just in the flippers, fish the area, lot lot easier. What type of rods are you throwing, and and what kind of length and and weight? Uh, if you could be kind of specific on that for us, Chris. Yeah, I, I mostly fish a uh, six weight, either a nine foot, ten foot. I like using a rod if I'm chucking indicators and crowded. But for the most part, I do a lot of uh, streamer fishing, and I like fishing with a six weight, nine foot. If I'm throwing big streamers, usually a little faster rod, or if I am doing the strike indicator and chronomid fishing, then I usually use a mid-fast 10-foot. Are you fishing, when you're fishing streamer patterns, um, are you using pretty short leaders? Uh, roughly keep around nine foot on my, uh, on my streamer setups. If I was on the Bow River and I was using sink tips, 
I, I usually short it down on there, but I'm not so glad. I, I really don't. I like it's like a three X leader, and then just keep on going from a three X to have a little separation. Right. So you got any crazy fish stories from your time in the parklands or or in Alberta, um, wherever you've been fishing these days? Um, well, I got one from when I was guiding. If you want to hear that, sure. <laughs> uh, so I used to was guiding up in uh, Northwest Territories about. I think it was about 2014. Yeah, uh, I had a set of guests come um, in, and uh, I've never, never had uh, an experience like that before. Uh, it uh, made me want to pull my hair out. I had a bunch of fishermen that were pro tournament fishermen that did walleye tournaments, and they fish a lot of lake trout down southern Ontario, and they came up there. And uh, instead of them asking me how we should fish and whatnot. It was more or less how they wanted to fish. And I, I come from a very strong fly fishing background. Unfortunately, I had to, I had to take out a bunch of gear fishermen. And I just before that was uh, kiting as fly fishing guests. And mostly in the 10 foot of water. And we were pulling out very large lake trout. Uh, I think our biggest one that week was 35 pounds. Wow. And then I had these new guests come in. And I was telling them, like, I was fish shallow water. And they would not listen to me. They told me, no, that's not how you fish. That's this is not in Ontario. We fish in a hundred feet of water. And I just wanted to pull my hair out. Well, then the one day we went out and, uh, I think I just, I lost it on them. I, I couldn't stand fishing with them anymore. <laughs> I, I told my owner if I couldn't fish with these guys anymore, they were driving. <laughs> and, uh, to go in a little more, more detail, but I, I, I drove them in that day and I, Drop them off on the dock. And say, I can't. I can't do with you guys anymore. <laughs> um, you not get another guest. I'm going to switch out. <laughs> no, and I think the worst part is when I switch guests. Um, we had uh, the next day. I switched back with somebody else. I had fly fishing guests, and just to rub it in. We were fishing in four feet of water, and we took this trout that year, a 44 pounder and a 37 pound lake trout on a fly rod, just just to rub it into these guys. Wow, and they, they weren't too happy. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. I, I didn't. Yeah, I, I never think that lake trout would be frequenting that shallow water. The Northwest Territories is a different area, especially on Great Slave Lake and Great Bear Lake. The water temperature always stays consistently cold, and with that, the lake trout tend tend to stay in shallow. You'll find them anywhere from 100 feet to five feet. They like to prowl the shallows, hmm. and it's a very effective way. Actually, fly fishing for them up there is a blast. A lot of people don't think you can catch them shallow, but with that water temperature always staying cold, they they'll follow the Cisco's wherever they have to go. Yeah, that well, that makes a lot of sense because that's where the the bait fish are going to be hanging, isn't it? Yeah, and then they're adjacent to you always adjacent to deep water, but they always come up to feed to the shallows. You'll see them prowling all up north. It's it's something different. It's it's a place you got to go to to actually experience it. It's it's I, it's hard to explain to me because I know a lot of people fish deep, but when you get up to these northern lakes, even in northern Manitoba. These lake trout will come in shallow, and you can easily on a fly rod. Wow. They are fun. That's amazing. So it sounds to me like you're fishing some pretty unique waters. So if you're guiding up in the Northwest Territories for these giant lake trout, and then uh, a lot of your time I know has been spent in previous years in the parklands in Manitoba, uh, let's get back to the parklands a little bit. It sounds like a very unique area, and uh, believe me, the I'm seeing a lot of tiger trout on social media right now. Mm-hmm. Maybe throw out your social media handles there, Chris, so people can check out some of the fish that you're chasing. 
Yeah, sure thing. Why like social media? Social media is uh, Parkline Flies on Instagram. Um, just started posting again. Uh, tie a lot of flies. I started fly tying when I was very young. I think out of vice, just a beginner vice. Maybe a year after I got my fly rod. And uh, what I'm kind of told is, you don't worry of having fly shops. And uh, if you want something, and if you live in the parkland, you're not. So rather than me trying to buy flies from, say, Cabela's or Fishing Hole, I, it was way easier for me to buy the material and start tying. Mm-hmm. And then uh, when I got more and more into tying and I started learning about entomology, I I started developing. And then, I, you know, I can make what I want and then uh, fish what I want. And then I can make some of the patterns that you can't really buy. And uh, I told them patterns, uh, Pequod, psychedelic Pequod, midnight fires. They're all patterns that, are, that you can't buy online. It's sense for me to start learning how to tie flies. Yeah, it's it's amazing how the success changes when you start making flies and bait fish appear how you want them to appear. Oh, yeah. Um, I've taken some flies that other people have tied, their designs, and I mix it with other people's flies. I take kind of the best of both worlds. For example, uh, Mark's Minnows, I kind of modernized it. I've gotten rid of like the hackles on the on the head of it and I've put on and used some uh, loom UV to glue them on and then used to put some throat on and I've taken some ideas from some patterns from BC for uh, that they use as a fry for salmon right? with the egg uh, I don't know what they call that egg yarn yeah I developed some patterns like that and I've improved them and it, you know it's I just find it it's so much better when you can design and make it your own. Mm-hmm. You can fish it your own way and you can add your own little triggers. Like I, I put on all my bait fish patterns just to throw a little bit of a trigger on there. So what do you say you put on all your bait fish patterns? I missed that one word. Oh, I put on, uh, I, I put lure eyes on and, uh, throats. Okay. Yeah. Well, the nice thing about tying too, is it really completes the season, especially, I mean, if you're up North a lot of the time and Manitoba is not known for, for short winters. So it, I would imagine that kind of gets you through to the, till the water opens up. Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time tying in the winter to kind of just get me through, but, uh, actually I moved out to Leicester, Alberta, just so I could, uh, have the chance to fish in the winter. I working in Northern Manitoba, I just wanted to be somewhere warm and have the chance where I could drive south close and go fishing. How, how, how long of a drive is it from Lethbridge to the Parkland area? Uh, it's only about nine hours. It's not too far. It's, it's close enough that I can do it in a day. And... We're chatting today with Chris Stock out of Swan River. Uh, we're chatting today all things Parkland in Manitoba and some amazing browns, uh, tiger trout, rainbows. Um, Chris, I'm going to take it down to a personal level just just a little bit. If you could change something in the world of fly fishing, is there something you'd like to see us do a little differently? Yeah, so one thing I feel very passionate about is conservation. Um, one of the main reasons why Manitoba, especially the Parkland region, is so well known for its large fish and quantity of fish is uh, we have a respectable limit. Um, one fish on, like, say, Patterson or Decarrick under the under 16 inches, and then catch and release. Um, I can guarantee you on Twin Lakes, if, uh, if it wasn't for conservation to catch and release, that, that fishery wouldn't be what it is. Um, I can guarantee you that those fish have been caught over many of times. Uh, that lake receives a lot of pressure, and I think just handling of the fish in the wintertime, especially um, in conservation-wise, it makes a huge difference. You know, I've had the opportunity to fish 
uh, around Canada, um, Alberta, BC, Quebec, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador with my job. And um, the reason I keep coming back to Manitoba is because we have a stricter um, catch and release. We have a two-fish limit for the most part for trout. Um, I was a big push in the Duck Mountain areas to change it from a different slot size. In Manitoba there, we have a 16-inch one-fish in, in our dual lakes. And uh, if I compare that to Alberta, I live in Lethbridge now, and you know, I um, there's a five fish limit in many of these lakes, and I believe it's a ten inch area. I'm not too sure. I usually practice catch and release, but a lot of these lakes that could be potential um, jewels of the area. You know, the, these fish don't reach that adult size. Right. So you don't see the quality of fishery like you do with Manitoba. You know, we there these organizations, Swan Valley Sport Fishing, Flipper. They they've done lots of work improve these fisheries and, and that's what makes a big difference in the conservation you know having that one fish limit or having a catch and release limit sure and then yeah no that, that that makes a lot of sense and i know i see that a lot on our waters uh, for some reason i always tend to like lakes that are maybe not totally catch and release maybe have a one fish limit because you know I do find sometimes that with straight catch and release lakes, those fish kind of get used to being caught and sometimes don't fight as much, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. Um, lakes in the park are a little bit more, I would say, different. Uh, my one example is Twin Lakes. Twin Lakes has always been a catch and release lake. And, uh, you know, the lake has changed over time, but however, those those fish always are aggressive. They're always in the prowl. They always feed and they always fight hard. They'll, you could probably catch one of those fish five times over, ten times over, and they're still going to peel you out to your backing. <laughs> you're, you're making me want to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's nothing There's nothing like that sound of that line just peeling out and getting into the uh, the brightly colored backing in a hurry. No, no. In Manitoba, a lot of those fish are going to take you out to your backing. So, That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable fishery. I'm so lucky I got to go up in that area and, when you're back home, Chris, in the in the Swan River area, where do you go to talk fishing? Like, if you or do you have a favorite watering hole or coffee shop or fly shop? Um, you mentioned there's not a lot of fly shops in the area. Where do you go to talk fishing? Um, I talk. I have a cabin actually up on on a lake a place called Walman Lake up in the Duck Mountain, and uh, I fish a lot up there. And a lot of people will come drive to my cabin just to kind of talk fishing and kind of pick my brain out a bit. Uh, I'm kind of well-known in the area, especially for fly fishing for smallmouth bass too, and walleye. Um, a lot of people come to like, come to my house and pick my brain BS for a while or go over someone's cabin, but that's typically where you'll find me. That's when they go talk fishing. That, sound, that sounds pretty legit to me. Yeah. So you got any big fishing trips planned uh, over the next little bit? Any uh, any lakes you're going to hit? Um. I actually just finished my kind of last little push there. I was in the East Cookies there. I spent a little bit of time on the Boulder River and the Elk River. Uh, pretty much now, my next big fishing trip is just going to be me going guiding up into Northwest Territories. Um, just getting ready right now. I, I came kind of unprepared. I, I wasn't really planning on going guiding this year, so I'm, I'm on a massive tying spree right now, tying up large lake choke streamers and uh, getting ready for Arctic grilling too. And I restocked all the caddis fly boxes and just making sure everything's ready to go. 
you uh, chase those uh, Tree River tra- uh, char as well? Uh, you know, the reason I asked that is we had uh, Chance Presti, who also guides, and I know there's quite a few lodges uh, with in the plumber's system, but have you, have you fished for any of those Tree River char at all? Uh, I've actually not had the opportunity to fish the Tree River. Um, this will actually be my first time guiding with plumbers. I guided with a different lodge before. Um, I guided up on Three Plays Lake. And then uh, I had the opportunity to actually fish the Stark River, uh, but uh, it was mostly for Lake Trout and Arctic Grayling and Kofi Arctic Grayling, but I've never been able to see River Arctic on that. That sounds like just some amazing fishing, though, up in that Northwest Territories, and I, I bet you're just going to have a blast this summer. Oh, yeah, it, it's, that's another tool to place going out there and fishing. It, it's a lot of fun. What is the season up there, Chris? Like, how short is the season? I, I don't imagine it's that long. Uh, it's, it's actually a very short season. As of right now, I, I on what day is June twenty first, I believe. Uh, yep. There's still ice up there. Right. So I just got a couple messages. Some of my buddies went up to Great Bear today, and they're flying over top, and there's still ice in the water in some of the areas. So you don't get a very long season. You only get maybe from mid mid June to about uh, I'd say sometime early October until you start to get the freeze up again. Right. So it it does, yeah. So so um, if you were to say, what's the best time to go up uh, that neck of the woods? What month would you well, pick? I would pick um, probably the last week of June. Uh, okay. What happens is you get the twenty four hour sun, and if you are going to go for say grayling, lake trout, um, you get the hatches coming off, and then you get the fiscals moving into the shallow water. So you get to chase a lot of these lake trout in shallow. And then you get the 24-hour sun, which brings on these caddisfly hatches if you get the chance to go fish uh, some of the rivers in Northwest Territories where the grayling just light up. It's, it's some of the best dry fly fishing you'll ever experience. That's a species I haven't had the privilege of catching yet, but it's it's on the list. i got to ask you to paint a picture for us. Tell us, describe your guiding, or it's a personal day on the water for you. Your, your day, your way. What's your? How does that look? Uh, you should get up around seven in the morning, uh, get everything ready. And if I'm going out, depending on, uh, on weather conditions, I like to go hit the points, the shallow points adjacent to deep water. Uh, spend quite a bit of time in those points, those well-known areas, and hit it with uh, large streamers. And then around noonish, we'll go in for a short lunch. I'll go prep everything, and then probably head back on the water somewhere closer to the lodge. Then. Um, not too far. We don't have to travel too far up there. Uh, probably a good day would be go fly fish some of the sandier bays adjacent to uh, deep water. Go go try to find a 50 pounder. That would be a good day. I I haven't been able to break the 50 pound mark yet, but that would be a, a heck of a day. What are those large char chowing on? Cisco's for the most part. Yeah, for the most part, they feed mostly on uh, Cisco's, whitefish, grayling, burbot. Um, typically though, when, when you find the schools, though, they're usually pushing up this close. Are you casting or retrieving? Are you trolling a fly? What does that look like? Uh, no, I do a lot of casting. Um, you can work that fly so much better. That's the one, uh, advantage you get to fly fishing is when you get those large flies tied with some of those synthetic materials, like big fly fiber and, uh, crafter and whatnot, if, if, what the, when you, what you can do when you cast is you can really work those flies and you can really make them undulate. And it just sets the lake trout off. It, it, it's hard to explain, but it, you can work a fly, I find, 
better than a spoon or anything like that. Just just so much more action. And it, it, it just attracts the fish, I find. Yeah. Better than trolling. No, absolutely. And you're really in touch with it. I always find that even any pattern, like even if you're working a dragonfly nymph, if you can move it with your hand rather than just towing it around behind a boat, uh, your your catch success rate is going to go way up. Oh, I, I, doubt. I think that's like one of the big advantages you have to fly fishing is you have the control to retrieve it the way you want and you can make it look like an actual fish or say if you're like you're talking about dragonflies and boatmen you know trolling them it doesn't it doesn't look like an, an actual insect if it's just going in a straight line across but like for example boatmen i love to cast boatmen out and give it three small little strips stop and then give it a little longer strip and then stop and then go back to the three and then it just looks so much alive, right? Like if you have rubber legs on, they twitch just right, and it just sets the fish off. Like I, I'm not a big fan of trolling flies or anything like that. I'd, I'd prefer to cast and, you know, fish the way that fly fishing is designed for. Do you use the fish finder up there? Yeah, I use the fish finder quite a bit. I usually try to find hidden reefs. Um, you you need a fish finder more, and also a GPS. Uh, there's a lot of hidden reefs out there. You don't want to be going full board clock and then smoke a hidden reef. Uh, hmm. it, uh, fish finders are pretty important, and especially you can help you find uh, suspended briscoes and then uh, suspended fish. So when you're looking at your fish finder, are you seeing like a bait ball of minnows and then and then some big symbols kind of right behind them normally? Uh, what actually when I last time I was up there, uh, I would just see mostly just the bait, the big bait balls. And the bait balls are so thick that actually I couldn't really see too much else in my fish finder. I never had like a super, super high end one when I was up there, but usually I'd find those bait balls and I would just kind of fish with them. Um, for the most part, I just use the fish finder for depth. Uh, if I am looking to target fish though, I actually use birds, seagulls. Seagulls are actually a really good indication of uh, fish because uh, when those lake trout start pushing up those ciscos, it brings in the seagulls and they start dive bombing. <laughs> Where you see that is a good good indication where those uh, lake trout are going to be. Yeah, I see the, exactly that on some of the lakes in my area. Um, just some large rainbows chasing kokanee, and they start almost just breaking the water. It's like they're trying to jump out of the lake. Yeah, and you know what? You can do that for a lot of species. I do it for in Manitoba in the parkland. I I look for that too. Those uh, those fleeing bait fish kind of breaking the water. Yeah, that's a good indication that <laughs> there's going to be active fish there. It almost looks like it's raining. Oh yeah, it just—it just—it's dead calm, and then it looks like just something's rising, like a, a log's coming up, and all this like bugs are coming off, and something like that. You can see them coming out of the water, just trying to flee from these fish. That's exciting fishing for sure. What about when you're back home in the parklands? Are you using a fish finder to locate fish there, or do you just kind of know the waters and know where to go? I actually, I don't really use a fish finder a lot, but what I do use a lot, uh, Swan Valley Sports Fishing in the recent years has done topographic maps with almost every trout lake in the parkland region. Uh, if you're ever looking for them, just Google Swan Valley Sports Fishing. I use those maps a lot. Um, I try to fish hidden structures, areas that, uh, you know, the drop-off areas or in the shallow flats. I, I use topographic maps a lot, but I don't really use fish finders. Yeah. I a lot of I know a lot of people do, but uh, I just kind of keep it simple. I I have a pretty good understanding. I've spent a lot of time in the area, so yeah, fair enough. Well, listen, I I really appreciate you coming on the program tonight, um, chatting all things parklands and and up north. And I wish you a great season on the water, Chris. Thanks thanks so much for coming on. 
No, thanks for having me, and uh, have a good one. We've been chatting with Chris Stock, Guide for Plumbers Lodge out of the Northwest Territories, uh, originally based in the Swan River area of Manitoba. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Thank you.